broadcasting live at 10 a.m. Central, worldwide on the web. This is OneRadioNetwork.com. A couple of minutes late, OneRadioNetwork.com. Good morning. Well, what can you say when you have live radio and uh, Mercury, I can say that, Mercury, as our guest pointed out to me prior to going on the air, is in retrograde. So that's probably why my uh, cacao in my morning drink just just didn't quite, oh well, I won't go into It's six minutes after 10 o'clock. Boy, we're six minutes late. Oh, my God. But who's counting? Live radio worldwide on the web from OneRadioNetwork.com. OneRadioNetwork.com. It's an honor for me to be here with you. Lots of good people coming up uh, this month. And if I grab my schedule somewhere, I'll pass that on to you uh, this morning. Also, tomorrow, Open Phone Friday. We're looking forward to it because of the holidays. We have not had an Open Phone Friday for two, count them, weeks, Christmas and New Year's on Friday. And we took the day off. So that's going to be fun. Boy, there's so much talk, of course, trying to figure out what the heck is the best diet for us. I mean, that is probably one of the top questions in the area of health and nutrition. And uh, your host has been at it for about 30 years. And frankly, I'm still have not a clue. Well, I'm, I'm catching on, but it's a daily adventure for you and I, for me. And then uh, talk of, of course, the ancestral diet. Been a lot of interest of late over the last oh, 10 years or so with a growing number of people that are venturing into the world of animal foods. Even folks like uh, former vegans and uh, recovering vegetarians as your host and things like that. So uh, this morning we're going to delve in a bit more with the lady by the name of Nora Gadgaudis. Did I do it? You did it. Gadgaudis. Lithuanian. Yeah. Ah. And and, and Nora, you are a, a, um, a clinical neurofeedback practitioner, and you're interested in nutritional anthropology? Well, uh, I suppose that's one way of putting it, yes. Uh, well, so you, you've connected up your work with the brain and helping people to focus their attention on getting to a primal kind of a maybe, well, you call it in your book, primal body, primal mind, but getting more to uh, what we may call an ancestral or a diet that really works for us? Well, yeah. Um, it's, uh, well, of course, you know, the brain training that I do, it's a, that's, that's one facet of what I do with, with my clients. And it's, uh, um, but I have about a 25-year background in, in nutritional science. I've been looking at all this stuff for a really long time now. And um, it's my approach uh, to diet does look somewhat at our ancestral roots when it comes to nutrition because it only makes sense to me to look at what we ought to be eating now from the perspective of what the selective pressures were that actually designed our physiology in the first place and designed our you know nutritional requirements uh-huh. um, and I take that as sort of a starting place but uh, I've also expanded on that idea uh, and, and, and actually deviated from it a little bit because as you know the the subtitle of my book is 
empower your total health the way evolution intended and didn't. Yeah, yeah, that's a great, great subtitle. Yeah. Uh, as uh, evolution intended and didn't. Well, how can you intend something to go one way and not intend it at the same time? Well, um, yeah, it's, of course, designed to kind of get, make you scratch your head and well, then, I of did. course, yeah, run head, out and buy the book. <laughs> my, my head exploded when I saw that. Yeah. Did it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm sure it made quite a mess. <laughs> well, because when you're looking at, you know, uh, when we're looking at how nature basically put everything together, we have to kind of look a little bit at things from the standpoint of what nature actually you know, where nature's intentions are. And, um, you know, nature's intentions aren't necessarily invested in our own individual well-being. Nature's got a broader agenda. Nature is interested in life in general and the perpetuation of life in general. And so a lot of it is about um, the perpetuation of the species, um, you know, the, you know, the, the, procreation and the um, procreation reproduction of genetic material into future generations. And when we look at our, our, our individual lives, you know, it's, it's no more important to, I think, nature's agenda than the individual cells in our body are to us. You know, we constantly have cells that are dying off and regenerating in our gastrointestinal tract, on our skin, um, throughout our bodies. And do we care that there are things that are dying off? Well, no, as long as things are regenerating, we care about the big picture of the ongoing uh, nature of existence. And that's kind of where nature's coming from. So when we're looking at trying to live a long and healthy and particularly post-reproductive life, you know, as we get, as we get on in age, as some of us are, not sure where you're at in, in, in the scheme of things, but um, when we get on in age and we get beyond that sort of what nature would look upon as our useful reproductive uh, time period, particularly for, you know, for women, I, but uh, nature becomes, it's not that nature wants us dead beyond that point, but nature starts to kind of lose interest in us. Yeah, yeah, the idea that well, folks tell us that our hormones do, you know, strange things. We start losing zinc. We, we start losing uh, the capability to actually digest the food with the lowering of the acid in the stomach. Those right. kinds of things where nature kind of says, well, if you're not going to make babies anymore, well, come on, just get a life and just right. m- move on. Right, right, exactly. Kind of thing, yeah. Out with the old and in with the new. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so past that certain point, we're a little bit on our own. And, uh, you know, there's this sort of a movement of saying, well, you know, nature is all wise and all knowing, and all we have to do is look to nature to, to understand what we need to do, or look to our ancestor to, ancestors to decide. And, um, you know, our ancestors were, were certainly uh, subjected to, um, to a lot of fairly harsh conditions and conditions that uh, we're not experiencing today, but our physiology is still adapted to. And, um, you know, when you're out in the wild and, and you're trying to make do, uh, it's, you know, there, there's sort of a feast or famine sort of a, a, sort of a situation. Mm-hmm. Things are, you know, you have to make decisions on the fly. And, and, uh, and just, you know, just because, for instance, our ancestors may have, um, may have gorged at times 
in order to offset other times when there may food may have been less plentiful doesn't necessarily mean that that was you know good for extending a you know good for creating a long healthy lifespan but it was what they needed to do in in order to survive yeah but it, it wasn't the body didn't know that there's probably a whole foods nearby right well yes exactly i mean so right so there's no need to eat a whole lot because you can always go buy more. Well, and, and this is uh, one of the conundrums that we have nowadays because we have this unnatural, I mean, extremely unnatural access to an extremely unnaturally abundant supply of food and, uh, and quasi-food, you know, Franken-food is some kind. Well, a lot of quasi-food out there. But uh, I, I want to go back to where you're going because I think the, the fascinating idea, the kind of nature... Let's see, how can we put this so your host can understand and everybody else? If the idea of the, of the let's, let's, let's say nature, as you so uh, interestingly said, kind of loses interest in us when we get to be like 50 or 60, right? So, well, you guys, you know, you can't make babies, so, you know, do something else. Right. Uh, but we as soul, uh, spiritual beings, can we say, well, we're saying, well, we have a whole other agenda here. We're going to figure out what God's about, why we're here, where we're going, what's it all about, Alfie. And we want to keep these bodies as long as we possibly can. Thank you. Right. So we have, we've evolved spiritually. So are you saying then, so what we might eat in 2010, even though it may be going against, quote, nature, unquote, might be a better choice? Yeah. Is that, is that, you're saying, is that what you're saying? Uh. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I think what I'm, what I'm trying to get at with all of that is that we, we need to kind of, we have a science now that our ancestors didn't have to understand, um, you know, how our bodies operate better. Uh, we understand better what kinds of things um, trigger aging, what kinds of things prolong, uh, prolong youth and prolong functionality. And if we look at the science and we combine that with what we know to be true from our ancestral heritage, we have kind of a potent combination, I think, to promote a longer, healthier life. And, and the good news about it is that it's entirely affordable. In fact, it's a lot more affordable than what most people are doing. Uh, you don't have to go broke, and you can still afford uh, to buy the best quality food available. And the reason you can afford to do it is that what we're what I'm advocating is is what amounts to a, a modified form of of caloric restriction. You know, back in the in the in the 1950s, and you know, and um, earlier, you know, this uh, earlier, uh, you know, 50, 60 uh, years ago, uh, there were a lot of studies done. Most of them initially with laboratory animals that seem to find pretty well across the board, and now even in primates, that something called caloric restriction seemed to have a universally um, universal effect of extending normal healthy lifespan. And, you know, the work of Roy Walford and the whole biosphere thing and, and whatnot seemed to also suggest that it had a, an effect on also promoting health uh, and reversing aging a bit in, in humans. And so, you know, there are actually whole, you know, groups of people out there trying to do um, their own version of caloric restriction, 
you know, living on one kumquat a day or a tablespoon of oatmeal or something like that and thinking that they're accomplishing the same thing. But the problem is is that a lot of the uh, scientists doing this research, they knew that it worked, but they didn't quite know why. And uh, they assumed it just had to do with some generalized effect with caloric restriction when, in fact, um, you know, research in just, you know, the last 10 years or so has shown us that it is actually much more tied to um, things like insulin production and also our protein consumption that uh, are the reasons why caloric restriction worked. And, of course, I go into this in a whole lot more detail. All right, well, uh, let's talk book, about that. because we never have time to get no, no, through no, all of it. But, but, but let's talk about that because there are two, two big things there that we can spend a little time on. Before we do, let's invite the listeners in uh, as we are live here, January 7, 2010. My name is Patrick Timpone with Laura Get goddess. Uh, Nora, actually. I'm sorry, Nora. Sorry. Or Nora, whatever. Nora. But you got my last name yeah. right. That's impressive. I did. Primal body, primal mind, empower uh, your total health the way evolution intended and didn't. And uh, here's the phone number, 888-663-6386. If you'd like to call with a comment or a question, and also emails are fair, and we have a computer right in front of us, most likely I can read it uh, and uh, keep them short and concise, if you would, Patrick, at OneRadioNetwork.com. We've had uh, guests on from time to time, uh, uh, one of the foremost vegans uh, in the country, uh, David Wolf, who's a regular over the years, and Dr. Gabriel Cousins, Cousins also another vegan kind of guy. But both of them and others have, have suggested that if you control your blood sugar, and also Dr. Hal Huggins is a big advocate of that, who's not a vegan, but uh, matter of fact, he uh, says you really need to eat a little animal food or you can't be well, but that's another story. But he suggests that keeping that blood sugar steady and low where it wants to be, around 85 on a little, little meter fasting, is the, the real key to longevity and the key to health. Um, do you get into those kinds of things in your book? Uh, well, yes, I do, but um, a part of what my book uh, also suggests, it, there's a, a bit of uh, what I present as, as a myth, that the idea that, that most of these recommendations are predicated on the idea that we have to have blood sugar in order to fuel our brain, in order to fuel our organs, in order to fuel our energy throughout the day. Well, I think most people with low blood sugar would say, yes, uh, that's a true statement, what right. you just said. And that's true only if you are metabolically adapted to being dependent upon uh -huh. sugar as your primary source of fuel. Uh, but because, we are actually uh, metabolically uh. designed to be able to handle one of two forms of fuel, sugar and fat. And sugar is, you can look upon as sort of your body's version of... of, of uh, of turbo fuel, it's it's it burns anaerobically. It's designed to uh, be there for us in a state of emergency. Say you're out trying to outrun a you know cantankerous woolly mammoth or a saber toothed tiger or something like that. That's where uh, blood sugar comes in to fuel things. But in order to what, what most people aren't aware of is that. The human body and all of our organs, including the human brain, is perfectly capable of running on free fatty acids and ketones. Mm -hmm. 
um, Boy, and more, can more, run on those things just beautifully. Yeah, more people are talking about that, too, with the yeah. uh, coconut oil for the brain and stuff. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. And um, Interesting. So and if, you, if we are metabolically adapted as, as being a fat burner in, instead of a sugar burner, then, which, which very few people are, by the way, in our culture, mm. um, if you can adapt yourself to being a fat burner instead of a sugar burner, which is a much more practical and steady and even burning source of energy, then blood sugar becomes a lot more of a trivial issue. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so I would actually consider 85 to be rather high, but it depends <laughs> on whether or not you're metabolically adapted. Now, if you're metabolically adapted to being a sugar burner, um, you know, uh, you know, having quote-unquote low blood sugar is something that is going to have big consequences for you. So, so when you're saying, uh, Nora, metabolically adapted, are you saying something like after 20 years of being a carbotarian, <laughs> then, then, then you are a doughboy, as some people have called, then you have a hard time, well, not a hard time, but it's, it's a slow road or it's a, it's a transition kind of thing to get yeah. to the fact where your body really does well on burning fats instead of the carbs. Right. It, it definitely takes some transition time. But, well, however, what I have discovered is that um, I used to think that you had to make that kind of transition real gradually. And what I've discovered is that that actually, um, that doesn't work as well. It, 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 it's much harder to make that change if you're doing it gradually. It's much better to make it, just make it, make the switch over to eliminating um, sugar and starch from the diet and you know, increasing the amount of fat uh, to a level where you're able to satisfy your appetite and uh, and. Give your body the idea that, wait a second, don't go looking for that form of energy. Your body has to, you know, you, you've got to come up with something else uh, to do this with. And, oh, yeah, that's right. You know, we do have a, a, a program here for, <laughs> for utilizing fat as a, as a primary source of fuel, and your body can make that metabolic conversion. Once your body makes that metabolic conversion, which <laughs> generally takes, you know, my experience has been roughly... A lot of people. Wait a minute, your phone cut out. What? Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, generally, that metabolic conversion takes anywhere from, um, you know, say three to six or so. Three to six? Oh, somebody, uh, yeah, I, yeah, I, I think it's You got a call now. waiting. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sorry about that. Yeah. So, so it takes three to six weeks? In general, okay. yeah. In, in, different. Uh, and what's the difference in the body's response of, uh, say, having coconut oil, olive oil, or, say, um, um, butter, right? Grass-fed mm -hmm. butter or something. And using that as fuel or using sugar when it comes to the pancreas and uh, insulin. Mm -hmm. What's the difference there? Well, you know, the, the, the primary purpose um, of insulin, of course, is not necessarily to regulate blood sugar the way a lot of people think. Um, insulin's actual purpose, it turns out, from um, from Cynthia Kenyon's work at the, at the University of San Francisco, um, um, or University of California in San Francisco, is is about the um, is about the coordination of energy stores with reproduction and, and lifespan, and uh, blood sugar regulation is sort of a trivial side uh, line for for insulin, but 
but it, it is true that, that the one macronutrient, you know, the three macronutrients, proteins, fats, and carbohydrates, that actually serves to stimulate insulin um, primarily is, is carbohydrate. And so the degree to which, I mean, what Cynthia Kenyon's work showed in her longevity research, uh, you know, working with these tiny little worms in her, in, her, mm-hmm. uh, in her laboratory, was that what it boils down to is that the less insulin that we produce over the course of our lifetime, the longer we live and the healthier we, we would be by far. Many people are, are talking about that now, right? Yeah. I mean, that's really going around, whether or not she initiated that work. Yeah, because it's an, it's, it's an inflammatory issue with insulin. Well, partially. Uh, we know that surges of insulin, surges of leptin do stimulate yeah. uh, uh, you know, pro-inflammatory uh, cytokines. And so we know that there's an inflammatory response uh, involved with that. And insulin also stimulates things like cellular proliferation, which make us more vulnerable to cancers oh. as we get older. And then if the leptin we know gets out of whack, well, then the whole... Uh, uh, how do you say that? It, you, you don't feel satisfied. Right. That thing gets out of whack. Right. And then you just keep eating. And leptin is primarily a fat sensor. It's, you oh, know, it, it's our sort of survival hormone. It's uh, constantly looking around to try to figure out if hunting is good or not. <laughs> and it's primarily a fat sensor. And it's actually produced in our fat tissue. Um, it's secreted by fat cells. For what reason, then, to control our appetite? Contr- well, yes, it, it controls our appetite. It also controls most of the functions of the, of the hypothalamus, and it decides whether or not we are going to, whether we're hungry or not, whether we need to eat fat, whether we're going to burn fat. So some of the, the, the people that have trouble really controlling uh, eating, uh, can they... Um, uh, is it this leptin thing, do you think, maybe out of whack a little bit? And yeah, then... we can become leptin-resistant in the same way yeah. we become insulin-resistant, and the two tend to be birds of a feather. Huh. If one is out of whack, if, if, if we're insulin-resistant, I just pretty much, pretty much automatically assume a person's also leptin-resistant and vice versa. Um, the, the symptoms are almost exactly you know, the, the same, and the way you, you deal with it is almost exactly the same. In other words... By preventing blood sugar surges um, and by getting blood sugar under control and, and getting it down there, and, and preferably um, finding a way to eliminate, in my opinion, uh, blood sugar from the mood and cognitive equation, as it were, uh, by becoming a fat burner instead of a sugar burner, you calm that whole cycle down, you calm leptin down, and you, you bring... Uh, a much greater stability and control to the system in that regard. And it becomes much, much easier. You're not so much a slave to having to constantly be monitoring and maintaining that blood sugar level in order to feel and function normally. I think that's one of the issues that a lot of longtime vegetarians have found. And as you know, they are also candidates for this syndrome, ex-metabolic syndrome, where they they get clogged arteries and they say, wait a minute, I haven't been eating any fat or meat for for 20 years. How can my arteries be clogged up? Right. Because they're carpetarians. Right, right. Yeah, a vegetarian and and vegan diet are typically, I mean, unless you're a raw foodist, you're talking about basically a starch-based diet. And uh, and it it goes against everything that we know about our about our ancestral roots about how we evolved 
it goes against everything that we've discovered in research concerning human longevity. Um, it makes no sense at all. So you're and, speaking of more, excuse me, more pasta, uh, rice, potatoes? Yeah, well, those are the worst offenders, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, anything, but how about the Chinese that do, like, they eat white rice three times a day? And well, we're talking, pretty- but you have to take a look at what else people are eating and how much of it that they're eating. Yeah. You know, here, of course, we have a habit of, because we have this unnatural abundance of food and unnatural access to an abundance of what at least people think of as food, um, it, but we still have that primal instinct that tells us, you know, feast or famine, feast or famine. So people are feasting all the time. You know, they're eating these enormous meals uh, three times a day, sometimes multiple times a day. They're snacking in between. We have an entire culture of people that's metabolically adapted to depending upon sugar as a primary source of fuel, which, by the way, I mean, nature would never been, never have been so stupid as to make us dependent on sugar, something so volatile, something so damaging, uh, so unreliable as sugar as a primary source of fuel. And, it, and as I've said quite a number of times now on, on, on different interviews, if you look at, um, if you look at, the, uh, the macronutrients that we're consuming in our diet, proteins, fats, and carbohydrates, strictly from the fuel that they impart, carbohydrates are basically kindling to us. They're, they, um, you know, you can look upon the whole grains and brown rice and all that kind of a thing. is is sort of like throwing twigs on the fire in order to keep the fire going. Um, you can look upon your potatoes, rice, and pasta, you know, the white rice and pasta is sort of like throwing paper on the fire. And... Uh, and I don't know if you've ever heated your home with a wood stove or not. I do. That's uh, my yeah. main source. You know what it would be like for you if you had to heat your house using nothing but twigs and paper. And then, you know, and then, you know, alcohol, of course, would be like throwing lighter fluid or gasoline on the fire. <laughs> so you're suggesting um, the wood stove, then the big oak logs are the fat. You know, I hope you'd have a comfortable lazy boy because you'd be parked in front of that wood stove all day long. <laughs> Nor we have to wait for just a second. This is great stuff. Come on in and join us. 888-663-6386. Nora Get uh, Goddess, and her book is called Primal Body, Primal Mind. If I can get my brain working here this morning. Empower your health the way evolution intended and didn't. Now, evolution kind of had, uh, we, we got a lot of exercise, you know, running away from from lions and tigers and stuff like that and chasing girls and, and that was good and uh, now people run go out and jog and stuff like that we have been an advocate of using the uh, mini trampolines uh, for 15 years now and i've been using them ever since and i haven't been sick in 15 years i haven't been sick in 20 years uh and i and i leave um i uh, lend a lot of that to the rebounding because uh, there's nothing better for pumping the lymph system and really getting the lymph moving. As we know, that's the whole system that kind of keeps things, uh, and it'll get all clogged up and stuff like that. And these little rebounders are very cool. There are 230 bucks. Get this, though. It is a lifetime warranty on the mat, everything, on the frame, the mat, the springs, for a lifetime for 230 bucks. We we sell what we think is the best one in the market, the Rebound Air, and what a value two thirty. What's cool about it? You don't have to have any special uh, clothes or shoes. You can do it naked. You can do it barefoot. You can do it with tennis boppers. You could do it in your 
and your home, as long as your ceiling is high enough, you don't bump your head out on your porch. Do it for five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 or 20 minutes and uh, do it once or every day. It, you know, it just it's just there and you can do it before dinner or or uh, get up in the morning and get the cobwebs out for five minutes. Really beautiful tool to have around. You can get it right on the front page of OneRadioNetwork.com. Use your uh, major credit card PayPal. You do not have to be a PayPal member. It is very secure. It will be delivered via uh, UPS in about three days or so on OneRadioNetwork.com.